Welcome to the Talent Planner Podcast. I'm excited to have Steve Murley with us. Steve and I have known each other a long time. He's a he's a past superintendent in school districts. I'll let him do his introduction, but he's really having impact in the education space and helping leaders in the educational system win at talent. And so, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Like you said, 30 years in public ed, last 18 as a superintendent of schools and now out of that job for one year, one month, and I think 10 days as of today. And so right now, currently you're with the University of Iowa as assistant professor and also run your own consulting practice that helps leaders in the school districts and in the educational industry. Is that, a, is that correct? That's a great summary. Yes, indeed. All right. Excellent. All right. Let's dive into this because I'm always fascinated by talent in the educational field because when we think about consulting and talent, we, we go to the for-profit industries that take care of us every day, but we don't think about the organizations that are educating our future, right? They're educating our kids. And you can make an argument. And one thing that really comes to mind when I think about this, I think about the mass responsibility that a school district has, right? So they may have 5,000 in their, their high school, and then they got a couple thousand in their, their middle schools. And then all of them have their parents and they have siblings. So you think about the responsibility that a school superintendent has. It's, it's five, 10 times that of a, a for-profit industry, just because there's so many people attached to every student that's in that building. I mean, speak to that a little bit from your experience being a superintendent and now working with superintendents. Sure. So the last position I left, uh, 4,000 employees, wow. uh, a $400 million annual budget all in. Uh, and then, like you said, uh, you know, in the for-profit world, you're reporting to a board of directors and you may have stockholders that you're reporting to when you're a school district superintendent, your constituency is the entire community, hundreds of thousands of people, some of whom have their kids in your district, but all of them are paying taxes to support the school. So yeah, it is indeed an enormous responsibility. Yeah. So COVID had a huge impact on the talent in the educational field. I know you're an expert on this. So talk a little bit about the numbers and what's going on in, in the talent space in the educational industry. So if you go back and not even that far, 10, 15, 20 years ago, regardless of the position that you post for in public ed, whether it was a teacher, assistant principal, principal, central office, superintendent, dozens and dozens of applications, in some cases, hundreds of applications for one single position. Uh, that is no longer the case. Now, for some of those positions, a superintendent of schools, for example, you may get a dozen applicants of whom, if you just run a rudimentary screener on it, maybe a quarter to more of those aren't even qualified for the position. I don't know if it's dire straits yet, but it's certainly close to that. Now, one of the other big challenges when you go down to the other end of the spectrum, when you talk about teachers, is with the teachers and actually with all of them, we have to go through a certification process at each one of those levels. And so you can't just say, hey, you know what? I need more teachers or I need more superintendents. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out and find some people and draft them in and bring them into the field. They actually have to go through a certification process, which could take anywhere from two to four years. So uh, we're always playing this lagging game. And right now, the number of people that are in any one of those prep programs, and in particular, teacher prep programs, is down. That really uh, casts a long shadow because you can't be a principal unless you've got a teacher certification. You're not going to be able to be a superintendent until you've gone through the principal certification process. So it's a long game with a very long pipeline uh, behind it. And 
for lack of a better way to describe it, our default mode for years has been self-selection. Self-selection into teachers, self-selection into building administrators, self-selection into being the superintendent. That's not a game that we can play in education anymore. Let's talk about some of the statistics. You and I have talked about this in the past where like, isn't it like, I don't know, I'm making this number up because I don't remember it exactly, but like 33 to 35% of all superintendent positions have turned over in the last year. Sure. So I'll just give you one state as an example. So there's about 420 superintendent positions in the state of Wisconsin. Okay. And 64 of those districts have a new superintendent July 1 this year. 64. So one out of seven districts has a brand new CEO. And for many of those districts, that CEO has never driven that bus before. They've never been a superintendent. So not only are they learning a new district, they've come in essentially, if you think about it from that for-profit world, they've joined a new company and they're taking a role that they've never had before. So you're talking a vertical learning curve there and Wisconsin is no different than the other states across the country. And you can look to the neighbors, Minnesota and Iowa, those numbers are almost identical in terms of about one out of seven, one out of six. Some of the states with some larger superintendencies, um, it's one out of five. And maybe one other statistic for you, the average superintendent, in particular in an urban district, lasts three years. So you're doing CEO turnover every three years. Yeah. In a role that has, to your point earlier, 10 to 15,000 lives that they're responsible for. It's just crazy. Right. Every time I'm with a leader of a school district, I'm just, I'm blown away by the responsibility that they have because there's so many lives attached to them. The number of employees, the budgets students and just the fact that it's our future and then add to it the divisiveness that we had going through COVID. So, I mean, every decision you made was what, half wrong in many cases? I mean, touch on that in your experience a little bit. Yeah, the the stressful decision used to be whether or not we should call a snow day. Uh, And and now it's, uh, which books do we keep in the library? What does the curriculum look like for human growth and development? And who's going to show up at my next board meeting and take exception to those things? And What's going to happen in my next board election and how are my past actions going to wind up translating into that tenure in the position and that continuity? So the stakes are, are they've always been high. Uh, I think they're higher now. I think the job, while it's always been challenging, has some additional challenges to it that have not been present in the last five or 10 years. Yeah, this the pressure and making a decision that you automatically know that maybe half or a quarter of your board's not going to agree with. Now you have, you know, conflict um, up and then you have conflict down trying to make a good decision there, you know, wearing masks, not wearing masks. You know, if you made a list of the top five toughest jobs to have during COVID, a superintendent uh, of a school district had to be in the top five. Would you agree with that? I certainly would. I think maybe the only job that was hard at that point in time was being a school board member. <laughs> yeah. After healthcare, being in healthcare had to be the toughest job, but yeah. uh, the, the responsibility that a superintendent had was just massive through COVID. So we have new leaders in positions they've never had before. We've had a lot of turnover. So w- what does that lead to, Steve? Like one thing that comes to mind for me is all of a sudden we have a new leader now that has to build out a team. Never done it before, right? And it was the team from the previous leader. When you work with superintendents, talk about the reality of what a lot of them are facing, especially some of the newer superintendents in their role. Well, you hit the nail right on the head with uh, one of those comments, which is when you come into that role as a school superintendent, coming into that role as a building principal, uh, you've got that leadership role, you're inheriting a team. 
So unlike the head coach that shows up, clears the coaching roster and brings in uh, the people that they want to run their own offense or their own defense or whatever scheme they want to do, um, you have the assistant coaches from the last coach. And you've got to now try to figure out how to make any changes that you want to, recognizing that your talent may not be aligned to that uh, particular game plan that you want to run. And the things that you want to introduce may not philosophically agree with their leadership uh, orientation. And there's a really problematic negotiation that you have to go through. I'll give you an example. So June 30th, he was an assistant principal. Wow. July 1st, he was a superintendent. Okay. So think about the ladder jump that you have there. One of the things that I told him is how important it is to remember the people skills that you bring to the position. So it's not just your technical knowledge. You've really have to be a master. And if you're not, you have to master it quickly. Those aspects of personnel management that allow you to take people who may bring a lot of baggage from a bad experience with a previous leader into this new role. And you don't have much time. I mean, I look at my clock, right? We've got just a few short weeks until kids show up. Mm. Uh, so you come into that job brand new, you've got to get those folks that are already there. Like I said, who bring their own emotional, uh, context to the work that they're doing. You've got to bring them together and you've got to form a team quickly because you've got to be ready to go on that first day of school. I reflect on transitions that I had where I came in from being a superintendent to a new superintendency. And I brought a lot of contextual knowledge with me when you're an assistant principal, and now you're a superintendent, you have none of that contextual knowledge. And so you're trying to master the technical skills of the position while you're really trying to figure out how to hone and, and take advantage of the people skills that you need to make sure that this team can move the district in the direction that you want it to. And speaking of moving in the direction that they want to, so you have a new superintendent or you have maybe you have a superintendent that's been in the role five years and they kind of want to refresh, like what, what, where do you typically start with a, a superintendent on working with them to uh, define that direction, if you will? So one of the things that, that I said used to be a, a luxury for us was we used to have a lot of people out there that wanted these jobs, whether it was your assistant superintendent, your director roles, your principal roles. Um, and I would argue that the high school principal is almost as hard a position to hire for as a good superintendent and almost as complicated. It's like being the mayor of a small town. You used to have a, uh, a plethora of people out there who were applying for these jobs. You don't have that anymore. So where you used to be passively receptive, you'd put the, the job posting out there, you'd see who showed up, you'd, you'd do your sifted winnowing process for the interview, and you'd select somebody to do that. Um, frequently, if, if that's your plan today, you get to the end and you don't have any candidates. You don't have anybody in that talent pool that measures up to the expectations that you have for that position. So you can't wait until that position's vacant anymore. You have to start thinking about it ahead of time. I talked about that self-selection piece. When I work with, with experienced administrators, I always ask them, hand up, how many of you were tapped to become a leader? And how many of you decided, hey, that schmo doing the job there that I work for isn't very good at it. So I'm going to self-nominate myself to go get my certification and become a leader. And in most rooms that I'm working with, it's 50-50. You've got the people out there who had a mentor, somebody who said, hey, uh, you know, you're a, you're a great teacher. You should go get your admin degree. But just as many of those folks, for their own reasons, decided to go seek that administrative certification. But if you think about that from a for-profit perspective, 
you know, your for-profit companies, they understand that leadership trajectory. They take those people when they come right out of college and start working with them on developing the skills that they need to be a leader to tracking them into it. And we don't do that in education. And in the past, um, our talent pool in some cases been kind of shallow. So now the obligation is for us to identify those people earlier to get them in the programs they need for the certification, to get them in the positions that they need to gather the skills that they're going to need later on, and then really to create a career path for them, something that we have not done uh, in education. And, and it's more and more incumbent upon us to do that because if we don't, two, three, five years from now, we're not going to have any applicants and we're not going to have anyone of quality to fill those positions. And that's a really interesting point you just made in that in a for-profit setting, you have a large group of people that you could build your successor out of where in the educational setting, you have 10, 15 people, maybe possibly in the front office, so to speak. And then obviously you have the teacher pool, but a lot of those people got into teaching because they wanted to teach, not necessarily run a school district. So, that's right. so your, your candidate pool is much smaller is what I hear you saying. Yes. And one good example, by the way, that succession planning is the way we do the superintendent handoff. So if you think about Disney right now, right? Disney had a failed CEO. So they bring the, uh, the former guy back. He's in there. What's he doing right now? Well, he brought two people back into the Disney fold and he'll be working with them with the idea that hopefully when he's ready to move on the second time, somebody prepped and ready to go. Mm-hmm. In, in education, whether it's the superintendent or the principal, they work like a dog right up until June 30th. On June 30th, they turn their keys into the central office. They leave. July 1st, the new person shows up. They get the keys, and now they're driving the bus. They've had no conversation with the person who used to do it. They really have no idea how that person was organized, what their personnel management was, what their effect was on the job. They've got none of that. So they go in blind, and they have to figure it out. People who are good at it, work really quickly and come up to speed. People who don't wind up uh, on the job for a year or two and then they're gone because they burn bridges quickly because they're they're walking through a minefield and stepping on a mine every other uh, footstep. I think one of the things that that we're starting to learn, and and to be honest with you, it's a very slow learning process in education, is we've got to figure out a way to identify that talent early. We've got to figure out a way to build bridges so that whoever comes in actually has an opportunity to work with who's leaving so that you can pass on some of that institutional knowledge, which otherwise just disappears in the wind. For us, recognize you've got to put some resources into it because education tends to really lean with the admin team. And that's one of the reasons you get these ineffective handoffs is, well, I can't possibly afford to have the, the current principal is retiring, stay on for three yeah, months. Overlap, or, yeah. yeah, where am I going to pay for that? So. We're getting to the point where we're realizing it's kind of penny wise and pound foolish, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're making choices that look good on the books, but from an organizational effectiveness standpoint are really, really bad decisions. So the first takeaway is start building the bench, start building secession. So secession planning is really important in the educational field is what I just heard. And it's probably even more important than the for-profit setting only for the fact that you have a smaller candidate pool to choose from. Absolutely. And our previous default was this passive role of, you know, I'll just put a shingle out when I need somebody and we'll see who shows up. And you were okay doing that because the talent pool was deeper. The shallower it gets, 
you've got to develop that talent inside. And that is an aspect of, of leadership in, in public education that has been largely absent across the country for the last couple of decades. We haven't done that. And uh, districts are, are starting to realize that it, there's a, a great return on investment to set up aspiring administrators programs where you can actually get out there and assess the, the talent in your teacher pool to think about who would make a good administrator. Because I remember I said, a lot of people self-select and they self-select because they didn't like their administrator. That's not going to make them a good leader. They might be a good leader, but there's no guarantee of that. And it's incumbent upon us to help people. I, I used to do HR work and I used to talk about when you had to get rid of someone, I always said that that's not a termination, it's exit counseling. You know, hey, Steve, you're not very good at this, but I didn't notice you're really good at that. Have you ever thought about doing this? Because you're no longer going to work for us doing that, but you might find a job somewhere else doing this and you might be successful, right? So when you think about that, it's doing the assessment of those people who want to be leaders so that you can say to them, you know what? You actually have a talent set that is geared towards that as opposed to you don't because if you think about the work that you're doing and, and the reason why I think it's so integral to the work that we are doing in public education, people are not always the best judges of themselves. They may unfortunately self-assess for a skill set that they think they have that's applicable to the leadership role, which isn't present. So figuring out some kind of objective measures that allow that person to go through it and allow you to reflect with them so that they understand, hey, this is something you might be good at, or you might look for some other alternative because this is not something you're going to be good at. Um, it's even more important because if you think about it, that poor person's going to go through a couple of years of schooling to get that certification. And if they don't have that basic skill set or, or the right motivational forces, they're not going to be good as a leader. They're going to be frustrated. The people that work for them are going to be frustrated. And those kids that only get one shot at third grade are going to lose out. So now being a talent planning advisor to the educational industry, you talk about the importance of secession planning and really long range. And when I think about a lot of the school districts that I have interacted with over the years, I think about the ones that become that school of choice, right? Like where people want to send. I think about those and I think, yeah, they have been working on their secession. And then I think about the other school districts that are kind of trying to get there, but struggling to get there, you know, had a four month gap. Uh, between mm -hmm. superintendents and stuff like that. So that's, that's a huge first takeaway. What are other priorities that the educational industry should focus on when they're planning for their talent? So there's a, a couple of really, really important ones, and that is understanding the composition of your team. When you walk in, right, if you're the new Badgers coach, right, he probably clears out everybody but the equipment manager. So he knows who he's bringing in for his defensive coordinator. He knows he can run that air raid offense because he's got an offensive coordinator that's got skills and experience doing that. He's got position coaches that can do that. If you walk into a school district as a new superintendent and you're inheriting all of your assistant coaches, it's probably even more important that you are able to dig down and really understand what makes those people tick so that you can understand how to work with them. You can share your profile with them so that they understand how to work with you. Communication is so important when you've got a small, thin team. And so understanding how to communicate with each other, what works, what doesn't, is probably of even more importance in a situation like that. And for the most part, 
Most districts have never done it. They, the admin team hasn't done it. The board hasn't done it. Mm. Um, so the board doesn't know how to talk to each other. The board doesn't know how to talk to the superintendent. Superintendent doesn't know how to talk to the board. Superintendent doesn't know how to talk to his team. The team doesn't know how to talk to each other. So when you have that opportunity to, to go in and work with them and help them know themselves so that they can then know each other, there's an opportunity to make very rapid progress. If they have to figure that out on their own, to be honest with you, many of them will never figure it out. Yeah, it could um, be a three to six month process versus they do, a, they do a team development exercise as the leadership team or they do a board development exercise to understand. And when you say profile, you're meaning DISC or some behavioral science right. that you might use, right? It, yeah, and it absolutely. Just, and, and what we've discovered in that is that the second you have behavioral science, it just opens up the conversation, right? Like everything now is easier to talk about because I understand you and I understand how to communicate with you. So that's, that's a powerful takeaway. So do team development with the admin team, get to know them, understand their stories. Their, everybody has gone through the challenges in their life, really understanding what made this person in front of you and who they are and maybe doing that at the board level as well, which I think that's even that that's incredibly important because now you're bringing people from all these other industries that have volunteered or ran for the school board. And that might even be more of a need than the admin team, just based on the fact that they're, they're not even in the educational field in a lot of cases. Well, you're absolutely right. They don't have the expertise uh, from a content standpoint. They likely ran for a very good reason. I I found very few board members who ran for a bad reason. They ran for a good reason. They want to help kids. They want to help parents. They want to help the community. They may not agree with the other board members and they only see each other once a month, maybe twice a month. Very hard for them to get to know each other. Plus the other thing is that they're not having an informal conversation like you and I are having right now. They're on the stage with the floodlights on them and you know, angry people in the audience. And so it's very hard for them to learn what makes the others tick. And, and if they don't go through some kind of formalized exercise, a disc analysis, a driving forces analysis, if they're not going through that, uh, they'll ascribe all kinds of motivation, intent uh, to, to things that they experience without understanding the why behind it. That can create some really negative emotions and, and really cause conflict where it doesn't need to exist, that's really hard to unwind because yeah. people take that personally. And once you get to that point, you know, that reparations process, you think that that three to six months you just described, boy, that reparations process, that takes years. Yeah. Yeah. And it, as we call it in the behavioral science industry, it, it's backpack, right? It's putting mm-hmm. stuff in your backpack and not being able to unpack it. And if you don't know the people that you're sitting on the board with, if you don't know the people on your leadership team, and you're wired a certain way, like the backpack is going to come out. And when that backpack gets heavy, it's difficult to unpack to your point. Relationships starting to get a little sideways. The next thing you know, I either have to let somebody go or I have a dysfunctional board or dysfunctional admin team at best. So, all right. So secession planning was one, team development was one, board development. What are other areas that based on your experience working with school districts and superintendents that you really think that they need to make sure is in the top five things they work on in their role? So I think one of the other ones that's really, really important is to actually start to do position profiles. Mm. I think about that with the, the behavioral sciences piece, right? Because there's no succession planning and because there's a talent shortage, 
when I need a position filled as an administrator right now in the environment that exists, I'm likely to take the best interviewer that shows up at the table. So without understanding that person's profile, what understanding what motivates them, I might hire somebody who's a good leader, but not a good fit for that position. So I, I said I was a, a chief HR officer. Yeah, you have to be wired a specific way in order to do that well. I took a position where I was the uh, third chief HR officer in four years. And, and the people that had preceded me were good leaders. They were good people. I knew them. But they didn't have the profile that would have predicted success in that role. Hmm. But the district had no idea what that profile looked like. So they're just shooting in the dark. Right? So, yeah. Well, so what you're talking about is, I think by the word profile, um, is that synonymous to benchmarking a role? Absolutely. So you know what you need in that role. Yep. The cool thing about benchmarking is you benchmark a role, you can compare the the current person in the role and see where their gaps are, where their growth opportunities are and use it for development, or you have the benchmark, you can use it to make that next hire. And if there is a change, you're immediately, you have your search going right away versus having that lag time of creating the benchmark. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about what's lost when you go through that churn. So I think about that role that I stepped into that had the three people in four years, I would argue that if they would have looked at a benchmark they would have seen the profile uh, of the people that they hired to be antithetical to the ones that they would have benchmarked for success in that role. Mm -hmm. Now, were those people great leaders? Yes. Could they have done something else on the team that would have added significant value? Certainly. I know one of them stayed with the, the district I was in and moved to a new position. It was wildly successful. But if you don't know what that benchmark looks like and you're not hiring to that benchmark, you're going to struggle. You're better off as a, as a school district. If you can't find that external candidate that fits that, you're better off to profile the people internally and move someone into that role who is built to succeed, given that benchmark, and let them acquire the technical skills after they're on the job. Uh, then you are to hire somebody who uh, may have a, a leadership profile that looks great, but isn't aligned to the position. Yeah, great, great idea. So. Now, talent planning, you're using that a lot in the educational industry and talent planning isn't talent management or talent development or talent retention. It's all of that, right? So a talent plan for your admin team, a talent plan for your board really includes secession. We talked about it includes team development, leadership development, retention. It includes what hires or promotions you're going to make over that, say, the next three years. Are there any other key takeaways or key things that that you want to share with the audience on, on how they can be successful using talent planning in the educational industry? For most people who are leaders in education, they started out as a teacher. You need that, that experience. Then they may have moved into building administration, which has a lot of familiarity because you're in a building and you're working with kids and you're working with teachers. And so that's something that you know. When you make that leap from a building administrator into some kind of central office role, it's completely different. For many, it's something they've never done before because they've always worked in that building level. I affectionately say they started school when they were five years old and at whatever age they are now, 40, 45, 50, they're still in school. They've never left school. They did K-12, they did college, they went right back to K-12. So they don't have the experience working in that, 
that professional organizational space that you find at a central office, which is not unlike working in the private sector. One of the things that talent planning does for you is it helps you identify their knowledge and skill gaps so that you are then able to make sure that they're getting the right professional development to both succeed in the job that they have now, but again, with that benchmarking to prepare for the job that comes next. So you're building in your own succession planning based on how you're growing the talent in your organization by doing that gap analysis and saying, what does this person know, not know? What are they able to do, not able to do? Okay, what do I need to do for them next so that they can see, succeed in the role that they have, but also be prepared for that next role that's going to open up in the organization? That's really what talent planning is, right? It's working upstream to be proactive in resolving any people-related issues you might have before they impact the organization, right? And that's why, I mean, everything that you just said in our time together here was is very proactive. And really, a lot of times the issue is, is it's more of a reactive thing. And then all of a sudden, we have this delay. We're not building bench strength. We're not building future leaders in our organization. But then you see the organizations that are doing that, and they're the school districts that everybody wants to, you know, the school choice that everybody wants to go to. So it's, it's really interesting on how that all plays out. So as we wrap up, Steve, we talked about some of the priorities of succession planning, retention, building future leaders, teen development, all of it. Again, that is part of talent planning. Is there any other key takeaways you want to share? I'll draw an analogy for you. So uh, pre-kindergarten education, um, real controversial for a long time. A bunch of research was done uh, actually in Ypsilanti, Michigan with the Perry Preschool Project. And they came back and said, you know, for every dollar you invest in pre-K, it's worth about $7 downstream wow. because kids are better prepared when they get to kindergarten. They, they're more successful in school. There's less special ed identification. They even tracked it through. They get better jobs after high school and they pay more taxes. So there are a million reasons why you ought to invest in pre-K. Well, a lot of people still aren't doing it because... Either they are not convinced or they haven't read the research or who knows what else is out there. I'd say education leadership has the same issue, mm, which is you've got to invest on the front end and it's money. Yeah, but it's time, right? And, and it's getting the right systems in place. So you think about putting a, a My Talent Planner in. Well, now you've got a system in there that actually allows you to manage this. So it's not just happening by chance. It's actually by design. And so that's going to require an investment up front. Probably your biggest investment is time. We're all busy, right? We already have too much on our plates. Understanding that that investment now pays enormous dividends down the road. And that may not be that far. It may only be a year out, but certainly two or three, five years from now. If, if you can ensure that there's a seamless transition in those leadership positions and there's not a three-month lag between this person leaves and the next person comes on, if you can ensure transition of institutional knowledge, you allow the, the organization to continue to move forward continuously instead of in fits and spurts. And that really starts, as you said earlier, way back downstream where you're doing that, that work on the front end to understand who your people are. Be very planful about what you expect them to do so that when you need that bench strength, it's there. That makes total sense. One of the things I get excited about working with you, Steve, is that when you impact a for-profit organization, you get to change some lives. But when you impact the school district, you get to change thousands of lives. And, and so that's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Steve Murley is that he's working in a field where we're investing in developing 
great kids that turn into great people that turn into great leaders. Keep up the good work you're doing in the educational field and working with leaders to help them be the leader that that school district needs, especially in the times that we're in. So thank you for that work. And that's got to be rewarding as heck, I'm assuming for you. Oh, yeah. I said uh, every day for 30 years when I got up, I worked in the one profession that you get to see the future every day, every day. That's cool. Yeah. If someone wants to contact you, Steve, share some contact information so they can get a hold of you. Absolutely. I, as coming from my days as a superintendent, I'm pretty sure half the planet has my cell phone number already, uh, but uh, they are always welcome to call me 715-212-5107. Of course, as a former superintendent, I always tell people, make sure if you text me or call me, you tell me who you are. I don't get disgruntled parents anymore, but I'm still a little gun shy on those uh uh, those phone calls or texts that come in that don't have a name with them. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing in the educational field. And uh, we love partnering with you. And thanks for taking some time for the Town Planner podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you for tuning into the My Town Planner podcast. We hope that our discussions have provided you with valuable insights and actionable tips to grow your people and your organization. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your support and feedback as we continue to share the exciting and ever-evolving world of talent planning.